John chapter number 13, John chapter number 13, what a blessing it is to be in the house of the Lord with you, me and my family, we've been traveling, I told somebody this morning, it's good to go to church with you occasionally, amen, so, but we're excited to be back into town and looking forward to what the Lord's going to do this week, John chapter number 13, and uh, again, I want to say welcome to all of our visitors, glad that you're here with us today, trust that the Lord will work in your heart. Let's begin reading in verse number one, John chapter 13, verse Number one, this is on the eve of the crucifixion. The Bible says this, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he was come from God and went to God. Let me just pause there and say, I wonder what he did next. I mean, knowing that, knowing what was happening, knowing that Judas was going to betray him, and knowing that he had accomplished the work of God, and knowing that all things were given into his hand. I don't know what you or I would have done. We would have probably left, amen. We would have probably went on to glory. But that's not what the Lord did. The Bible says this, He riseth from supper, laid aside his garments, and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wash them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter. And Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered to him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. And Simon Peter, in typical Simon Peter fashion, <laughs> saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, Ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. Let's stop and pray. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for the word of God. And thank you for the example of the Savior. Lord, help us as we approach this passage to have our hearts open. Lord, not just to the explanation of it, but to the application of it. Lord, help us to be willing for you to do an eternal work in us today. Lord, I don't know the heart's condition of any person here. But Lord, you know all of our hearts. And Father, there's not a single person who the very deepest inner workings of their heart and mind and their daily activities, what they do and have done and not done. Lord, you're aware of all of it. And so I trust you and I trust your Holy Spirit to take your word and to apply it in an appropriate way. Help me, Lord, simply to get out of the way. Hide me behind your cross and may we see Christ this morning and may he receive glory from all that's said and done. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. John chapter number 13 records for us some of the most intimate and tender moments in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we said a moment ago, He is on the eve of Calvary. 
after he washes the disciples' feet, he will begin to impart to them some of the deepest and most profound teaching of his entire ministry. They will then get up and after supper and after the Lord's Supper has been instituted, they will go down to the uh, to the uh, Garden of Gethsemane uh, singing a hymn and he will be betrayed into the hands of wicked men with wicked hearts and he will be taken to Caiaphas's house and the proceedings will begin that will result in him being nailed to the cross of Calvary. But before any of this takes place, John makes note of a moment during this evening when the Lord does something of deep meaning and of deep truth. The Bible tells us that Jesus riseth from supper, that he laid aside his garments, that he took a towel and girded himself, that he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. This is one of the most fascinating episodes in all of the Word of God. Not just because it is unusual, not just because it is proprietary to this moment, although it certainly is, and we'll say a moment here in a little while about uh, what the Lord is doing at this time, but because it represents a moment of deep, intimate fellowship that our Lord enjoyed with His disciples. Think with me for a moment about the context here. John gives us a framework to understand and interpret this through. And the magnitude of it is almost awe-inspiring. Verse number 1, the Bible says this, when Jesus knew that His hour was come. I mean, you understand what that phrase means, right? His hour was come, meaning the moment of His crucifixion. You understand that this was a moment that had been in the works ever since before the worlds began. The Bible says that before the foundation of the world, that the Lamb was slain. You understand that all the workings of human history had led like a funnel down to this very moment in time. And here the Bible says... When Jesus knew that His hour was come, that He should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved His own which were in the world, and I like this phrase, He loved them unto the end. If we're going to understand this passage, I think it helps to understand that John gives emphasis to the fact that the purpose of God in the life of the Lord Jesus had been accomplished. Now, somebody's going to say, wait a minute, preacher, we've not even got to Calvary yet. And I'll agree with you, the purpose that was to be accomplished in His death had not been accomplished. The purpose that was to be accomplished in His resurrection had not been accomplished. But the purpose of His life to be the expression of the love and light of God to a broke and dark and hating world had been accomplished in those three and a half years. The Bible says He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. That light came into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Three and a half years had been a total and constant onslaught against the good doings, against the kindness, against the mercy, against the loving kindness of the Lord Jesus that had been expressed to a hostile and hating world. I don't know about you, but if it had been me, I would have given up on love a long time ago. But Him that is love doesn't give up on love. And the Bible says He loved them unto to the end. So, preacher, what does that have to do with my life? Well, it's a reminder that he don't give up on loving us. You say, but preacher, I've messed up and I've hurt him. And I, I'm sure you probably have. I know I have on many occasions, but he still loves us. 
Say, preacher, you don't understand the things I've done in my life. I know that He loves you. I don't have to know. I don't have to read the catalog. I don't have to see your rap sheet to know the magnitude of the love of God, the invincibility of God's loving kindness. I know this. He loved His disciples unto the end. He loves you even this very day. You say, preacher, God don't even know who I am. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows your name. He knows your fears. He knows your heartaches and your sorrows. He puts your tears in a bottle. You say, preacher, no. Somebody loves me. Oh, yes, somebody loves you. God loves you this morning. The purpose was accomplished. Verse 2 goes a little deeper. The Bible says this in supper. And by the way, that's how you know God's a southerner. He eats supper. Amen. He don't eat dinner. He eats supper. Supper being ended. The devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot. Simon's son to betray him. You say, preacher, what's going on in this chapter? Well, one, the purpose was accomplished. But two, the plot was afoot. In other words, it was not lost on Lord Jesus what was getting ready to happen to him. We'll say here in a moment a word about this, but you understand that one of the men whose feet he washed was the man who had plotted to betray him. In other words, he knew what they were. He knew what they would do. Let me say this. He knew what it would cost him. I'll tell you one of the greatest truths you'll ever learn about the love of God is that it is an intelligent love. God was not hoodwinked into Calvary. He chose it. You say, preacher, how could God love me if he knew everything? He does know everything you've ever done. You understand when he bought you, he knew what he was getting. And here in this passage, even him knowing that he is under imminent threat, if we can use that term about an omniscient God, he is under imminent threat. There are even present at the table those that would see him destroyed. The plot was afoot. But verse three, I like the Bible says this, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He was come from God and went to God. You say, preacher, what does that teach us? Well, the purpose was accomplished and the plot was afoot, but hey, listen, praise God, the plan was still intact. Never for a moment did Jesus worry it had gotten out of control. You find this even in the Garden of Gethsemane when the men come, the soldiers, to arrest Him and they say, Uh, Unto him we seek Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And just the very power of his name being declared. He is I am. Amen. When he says I am, the very force and power of that declaration comes like a sonic wave and knocks them backwards. Why did God do that? That didn't happen every time the Lord said the phrase I am, but it happened then. He wanted to understand uh, they may have come to take him, but he was going willingly. Never for a moment was it out of his control. Even in those very last moments on Calvary, the Bible does not say he succumbed to his injuries. The Bible does not say his body overcome with weariness gave out. But rather the Bible says that he said unto the Father, into thy hands do I commend my spirit. And he bowed his head. The very word denotes the idea of control and agency. He didn't die because death had won. He died because he was ready to die. He gave his life a ransom for us. And he bowed his head and said, into thy hands do I commend my spirit. And hey, he didn't lose the ghost. He gave up the ghost. See, the whole time the plan was intact. You know, sometimes in our life we get feeling like God has lost control. But can I tell you, if He hadn't lost control in this moment, He has never lost control. You understand He was in control at the moment of His own death. No man could ever say that. Death is the great robber of agency in humanity. Uh, When a person dies, it's because it is the ultimate losing of control of the situation of the matter. We don't choose to die, but we have lost control of the matter. But when the Lord died, He hadn't lost control. He was still in control. 
In other words, knowing the purpose was accomplished, knowing the plot was afoot, knowing the plan was intact, what did Jesus do? You understand, I don't know about you, you know, we just got through taking vacation, and I always feel rushed trying to get out of the house on vacation. You ever feel that way? You plan for months and months and months. You, you, you change the oil in the car, you mow the yard, but you forget your toothbrush, amen? And you got to turn around and go back. I mean, you understand how how pivotal a moment this is. wonder what God would prioritize in this moment. I wonder what would be a vital necessity at this moment in the Lord's ministry. The Bible tells us it was in this moment that he got up, girded himself with a towel, and began to wash his disciples' feet. I don't know about you, but it almost seems inexplicable to me. Probably, had I known what he knew in that moment, I would have been worse than Peter, and I would have probably said to him, Lord, why are you wasting time washing our feet? We've got to get you out of Jerusalem. We've got to get you on the road. We've got to secret you away. But the Lord, knowing all that was taking place, he felt it was so vital and so necessary that he impart to his disciples this fundamental truth that they ought to wash one another's feet. Now, somebody's going to say, well, now, preacher, we're independent Baptists. We don't wash feet around here. And that's true, not just ceremonially. Most people don't even hygienically. Amen? Some of you I know. Amen? We can tell. But understand that there is a deeper truth that is being communicated here. You see, if you view and read into this simply some sort of ordinance of the New Testament church, which, by the way, has no history whatsoever, either in New Testament revelation or in early church history. They didn't wash feet as an ordinance. Paul never instructed them to wash feet as an ordinance. There's no example of feet being washed as an ordinance. The greater danger is not that somebody's feet get clean. We could probably all use a little bit of that. The greater danger is you miss the deeper truth that Christ is teaching in this pivotal moment. You see, he didn't just wash the disciples' feet, but I found that in my daily life as a Christian, ever since I was saved as a 10-year-old boy, that moment by moment and day by day, I've looked down and found him washing my feet as well. I'm going to preach to you on this thought this morning. He washed my feet. I want you to notice three things with me and then we'll be done. Let me say number one this morning. It is apparent when you read this passage. That the thing that Christ was communicating was not simply the act of the washing of feet. This was a common occasion or a common practice in an oriental home at this time. Uh, And the Lord even alludes to this later on when Peter asks him to wash his head and his hands as well. And the Lord says, he that is washed needs not save only to wash his feet. They were living at a time when most people, the shoes that they were wearing would have been open shoes. They would have been sandals. And they were living in a time when most uh, roads would have been dirt roads. They were living in a dry climate that was dusty. And it was not uncommon if a person, though they may have bathed recently and on the whole be clean, when they entered into a person's home, it was common courtesy for the owner of that home to come and to present them with water so that their feet could be washed. That the grime and the dirt and the debris and the residue that they had accumulated from walking through a dusty, dirty world could be washed from their feet so it wouldn't soil and sully the carpet on the inside. And so when the Lord did this, This did not necessarily, for the simple act of it, 
seem to be a strange thing. It was rather the fact that it was He who was not the master of this house. He who was actually the master of the universe. He who should, if anybody should have washed feet, it shouldn't have been Him, that He would do it. But the practice itself was fairly common. And yet when the Lord does this, it is pregnant with meaning for the disciples. Why is this? He tells them later on that what He's doing is not really just washing feet. He's doing something deeper. What does that mean to us? Let me say, number one, this morning that what He did was a picture. Though it was a common practice in Oriental homes, you and I, with the full breadth of New Testament revelation, can look at what He did and recognize that Him being the one that did it, the moment that He did it, the manner that He did it, the audience or the recipients of who He did this for, all speaks deeply of our Lord's greater ministry of redemption. You see, when He washed their feet, it was a picture of what He had done when 33 and a half years earlier, He had stepped out of the veil of glory, robed Himself in a human body, and begun to walk amongst mankind. It was a picture, I would say, number one, of His condescension. I love the way that John describes it in verse 4. The Bible says this, He riseth from supper and laid aside His garments. I don't know about you, but it's hard enough to get to a good meal in this life. When I get there, I don't want to leave. Amen? Uh, Buffets tremble when they see me coming. It's a personal challenge when I see a buffet. Uh, they, they, I, I'm the type of person that they change the sign for. You know, you go into some of these buffets now, and it will say, all you care to eat. I'm the reason for that sign. Amen? And uh, I, you imagine the Lord, after having enjoyed a supper and reclined and relaxed with the disciples and enjoying that time of fellowship, when all of a sudden He stirs, He gets up from the place of comfort. He gets up from the place of, of a lavish accommodation. He gets up from the place of prominence and honor. The Bible describes John as being leaning upon his bosom at this time. It's obvious he is the centerpiece of this dinner. He arises from the place of importance. He arises from the place of prominence. He arises from the place of glory. He arises from the place of praise. He arises from the place of leisure. He arises from the place of comfort. He lays aside his garment and takes a servant's towel to himself. What a beautiful picture that is of our Lord leaving the halls of glory. I mean, you understand heaven is a lot better for Him. The supper up there is a lot better than the supper down here. You understand that He sat reclined, rested and immovable upon His throne with angels accompanying and attending Him at every moment to cry out His holiness, His omnipotence, His glory and His majesty. You understand He could have sat in the glories of heaven throughout all of eternity, never lacking a single thing, but in Instead, He chose to rise from His throne in glory to descend into this broken, hostile, and hating world to robe Himself with the infirmed flesh of broken man and to walk amongst us that He might minister to us. It's beautiful in what He laid aside. I don't know that human mind can ever comprehend. In fact, I'm going to say, I know human mind cannot comprehend because I have not seen, hey, and neither hath ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. Hey, but those things are revealed unto us by His Spirit through Jesus Christ. I mean, you understand, what we have in Him is what He had in Him. You understand that all that He had, He imparted to us, and He left all that that He might rescue and redeem you and me. What a beautiful picture it is in what He laid aside, but not only what He laid aside, but what He put upon. 
The Bible says this, he took a towel and girded himself. Put it upon him almost like an apron to bind up the garments that he was wearing, but also to protect against the water or the dirt should it reach him. This was the typical and traditional garb of someone that was there to serve. You look at the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus, and one of the things that becomes immediately clear is he didn't come to be ministered unto. He came to minister. His entire life, and I understand that uh, it was about the Father, but it, it, you understand when you look at his life, uh, never for a moment is selfishness seen in his behavior. Everything he did, he did out of a servant's heart. You read through the Gospels and you'll find that of the four Gospels, each of them presents Jesus in a different aspect. Three of them are what we call synoptic Gospels, meaning they essentially tell the the same series of events. And John is unique. John tells things that, that the other three don't tell about and the other three tell things that John doesn't tell us about. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all what we call synoptic. And all four of the Gospels, they present to us different aspects of the Lord Jesus. For instance, Matthew presents Him as the King of the Jews and the King of Kings. You will find he has a distinctly regal aspect to his ministry there. He's called the son of David and he speaks in authority and he talks about the governance of Israel and the responsibilities they have relating to the kingdom. Luke presents him to us as the son of man. Over and over again, he's called the son of man in the gospel of Luke. And it presents to us Christ in his humanity, his suffering, his infirmity, his weakness by den of of the human flesh he was robed in. John presents him to us as the son of God. The Bible tells us that the gospel of John, probably, I guess, unique in the Bible, uh, different from every other book, save maybe the book of Nahum, in that it is distinctly written to law people. It's written so that lost sinners might read it and read about who Jesus is and believe upon Him. It describes His divinity and the powerful miracles. It begins with God's genealogy when it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You say, preacher, what's God's history? He was. He was, He is, He ever will be. He is uncreated, He is eternal and always existent. But you know, Mark, Mark describes Him in a different way. The Gospel of Matthew has a genealogy. The Gospel of Luke has a genealogy. John has only this divine genealogy before time began. But did you know the Gospel of Mark has no genealogy? Because it presents to us the Lord Jesus as the servant of God and the servant of man. And over and over again in the Gospel of Mark, you'll find him and he is reaching the most wretched. You'll find him and he is handling the most hurt. You'll find him and he is rescuing the most rotten amongst us. Why is that? Because his entire earthly ministry, he came to minister, he came to serve, he came to seek, and he came to save. Here, when he takes the servant's towel, it's not the first time he's took upon him the likeness of a servant. Paul would describe this in Philippians chapter number two. One of my favorite passages in the Bible says this, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. It was not false humility that caused him to come to this earth. He was equal with God because he was God and he is God. And it was not robbery for him to be equal with God. But this is what he did. He made himself of no reputation. He took upon him the form of a servant. 
was made in the likeness of men and became found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He had served his father. He had served humanity ever since he had robed himself in flesh. Really, if you want to get uh, really explicit about it, all even through the Old Testament, he is seen serving God and ministering unto mankind. But here, why would it be any different? It's a picture of his condescension. Then verse 5, the Bible tells us this. Not only about what he laid aside and what he put on, the Bible says this, after that he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. It's not just a picture of his condescension, but it's also a picture of his crucifixion. What an amazing thing. He takes that water, which in the pitcher can be of no use to cleanse anyone. It has all the properties, it has all the abilities, but it is not accessible. It is not easily able to be applied and to be cleansing in the person's feet. He takes it, notice what he does, notice the water in the bowl. He pours it where it can do something in someone's physical well-being. The Bible, I've I've told you this before, that water in the Bible, it sort of has two pictures or two representations. Water, when it is consumed, it is often a picture of the Holy Spirit of God when when it is drunk and when it is consumed. But often when water is used to cleanse or to wash, it is a picture of the Word of God. You think about in the Old Testament, the law being given in all of its magnitude, in all of its glory, in all of its perfection, in all of its wholesomeness never once had the ability to bring about true righteousness in a person. It was water, but it was water in the pitcher. But when the Lord came and died on the cross of Calvary, He made practical, applicable, and and helpful the truth of the Word of God in your life and in mine. In other words, the Word of God, were it not through the death of Christ on Calvary. You with me this morning? You all right this morning? I'm Toby Weber. It's nice to meet you this morning. You okay? He, through His death on the cross of Calvary, took what had been a writ of condemnation and made it an offer of salvation. The Word of God, which had been the arbiter of death unto mankind, because all it did was condemn mankind, now became the source of hope and life and light. He took the water and put it in the basin when He died on the cross of Calvary. The water in the bowl reminds me of Calvary, but then the washing of the feet reminds me of Calvary. The Bible says this, he began to wash the disciples' feet. They say, well, preacher, I already know that. It's what we've been reading about. What's our, what are we going to say about that? Well, I want you to think about who's in that group. We have a funny revisionist history way of reading the Bible. It's amazing. We can read the Bible and completely disregard what the Bible says about people in the Bible. And when you read about the disciples, and I'm not trying to be hard on these fellas. I mean, they did better than I would. I don't doubt one moment, but I mean, this is a rough crowd that he's ministering with and to. When he began to wash their feet, I mean, we've sort of allowed early church history to lionize and canonize these people as saints. They were saints in the sense that every saved individual is a saint, but they certainly were not perfect human beings. And in this moment in time, they are deeply flawed. Who was the type of people whose feet he was washing? Well, I would say this. He's washing the feet of oblivious Philip in this passage. The Philip that in the next passage is going to say, in the next chapter, he's going to say, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. Christ is going to look at him and say, have I been so long time with thee, Philip, and yet thou hast not known me? 
If thou hast seen me, thou hast seen the Father. You ever met someone in life that was oblivious? They might be sitting next to you and not know when you're saying yes that they're talking about you. Amen. Get ready to cause some fights in this room. Oblivious Philip, he washed his feet. He washed the feet of doubting Thomas. You understand that Thomas is getting ready here in just a few days to come into that upper room and with all of his friends and all of his 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 companions are going to look at him and say he was here, he's alive, he's risen, Thomas. We saw him, he he sat with us, he talked with us. Thomas is going to say, I will not believe. I will not believe. I will not believe. And yet Jesus washed his feet. He's getting ready to wash the feet of John and of James. We have really high opinions of John. We think of John as the tender, beloved apostle. But understand, these two young men had once had the nickname Sons of Boadrones, Sons of Thunder. And when you read through their interactions with the Lord in His earthly ministry, it's apparent, though there's many things that would recommend the character of John in in his behavior, there are also some red flags. I mean, they're the ones that come to Jesus one day and said, Lord, there's some people didn't listen to us. Can we call down fire from heaven and consume them? (laughs) There's some people still got that attitude today. And the Lord has to calm them down and say, no. They're ones that would come to him and would say, hey, put us on your right hand and on your left. We deserve to be there. He would say, you know, not what you ask. Are you ready to drink of the cup that I will drink of and be baptized with the baptism I'm to be baptized with? I would say this, he's going to wash the feet of oblivious Philip. He's going to wash the feet of doubting Thomas. He's going to wash the feet of prideful John and of prideful James. He's getting ready to wash Peter's feet. Peter, who before the sun rises, will sit by a fire and curse his name and say, I never knew him. And Jesus knew it the whole time. And he's going to take his feet in his hands and he's going to begin to wash them. (laughs) And he's going to begin to wipe them with his towel. Would he do that even if he knew what we'd do? Everything he's ever done for us, he did knowing what we'd do. But it gets even worse. There's going to be another man at that table. He's going to pick his feet up and he's going to begin to wash. And it's the man who literally at that moment, Satan has entered his heart. He's already entered into an agreement. The money's been paid. The plot has been laid. The trap has been set forth. He's getting ready to take those very feet. I want you to think with me. He's going to take those very feet that have just been in the hands of the Savior. He's going to use them to get up from that table and go and tell his confederates, those Roman soldiers, that now's the time to go and take him. He would even wash plotting Judas's feet. Knowing the hatred in his heart. <laughs> knowing, the hate, knowing the hate. Hey, did you know he died for you when you hated him? Do you know he died for you when you didn't want nothing to do with him? You might be here today and say in your heart, if you really knew my heart, preacher, if you really knew my heart, you'd know I'm angry at him. I'm bitter at him. He let things happen in my life. He let things take place in my life. And how dare he? And, and you in your heart have bitterness and resentment and anger and he would still wash your feet. That's how much he loves you. When I read this, man, it reminds me of his crucifixion. Not just in his... Uh, in the water in the bowl and the washing of the feet, but also in the wiping with the towel. He takes that life of servitude and with the water uses it to cleanse away the stain from their feet. You know, that's a perfect picture of what Christ did for us on Calvary. He took the totality of a sinless life. You understand that you and I as sinners, we had a sin debt. We had transgressed against a holy God. You say, well, preacher, why does a sin debt have to be paid? Because God is a holy God. 
God has said, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. You and I are sinners. And therefore, we either have to die or that sin has to somehow be dealt with because ignoring God's holiness is not an option. You understand the worlds were framed by the Word of God? You understand if God ignored His holiness, the entire universe would implode upon itself, that all things are held together by the power of His Word, and that if He denied His holiness, if He lied, if He broke His Word, the very fabric of existence would begin to unravel and begin to disintegrate. Hey, you don't want Him ignoring His holiness. But he came up with a better solution. We owed a sin debt. We couldn't pay that sin debt. You know why? Because we're sinners. Uh, we, we got the same problem the government has. We try to pay debt with debt. And you can't do it. And so there had to be someone come that didn't owe a debt and could die in our place. And that's what the Lord Jesus did. He came and the Bible says he fulfilled the law. He didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill the law. And fulfill it he did. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. He has made a curse for us. He is He bears the curse of the law. He bore our sin and He became our sin. God had made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He took Him through that perfect sinless life. He paid the price for our sins. He died on the cross of Calvary, arose powerful, victorious over death, hell, and the grave, and is now alive to hear you, sinner, when you cry out and need salvation. He took that perfect life, that servant's life, and combined with the water of the Word of God, used it to wipe clean the life of a broken sinner. You see, what he did was a picture. I don't know how much the disciples understood. I know Peter did not understand much. Because verse number 6 says this, Then cometh he to Simon Peter, Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Let me pause and say underscore that in your heart, in your mind, and if you write in your margins, in your margin. What I do thou knowest not now. They knew he was washing feet. For those that would say we need to institute washing feet, they knew he was washing feet. But he's saying, no, that's not what I'm doing now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter said to him, thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. He said, number one, what he did was a picture, but number two, what he did was a priority. This was not just an additive to their fellowship with Him. This was a necessity in their fellowship with Him. Now let me just go ahead and reveal the plot before we get there in the preach. And I hope that's okay. I hope you don't want a refund for your ticket. But He's getting ready to reveal to them that this has a deeper meaning. What is the meaning applicable to the life of the believer? Peter's going to say, wash my hands, wash my head, wash me all over. And he's going to say, whoa, Peter, you're missing what I'm doing here. He's saying, you're already clean. And he will tell them here in a few moments in John chapter number 17 that you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Uh, They had already been clean by dint of their believing upon him. 
But just like that visitor to that oriental home that though they are clean on the whole through their walking through a dusty, dirty world, they have accrued debris and mud and sand and dirt. And so then because of their uh, journeying through their world, if they want to come into the house for fellowship, their feet have to be clean first. So likewise in the life of the believer, we are washed, we are cleansed, we are perfectly justified and whole in the eyes of God. However, as we walk through this broken world, we still do wrong. We still sin. We still mess up. As we're walking through this world, we still get dust on our feet. We still get dirt in our tracks. And because of that, if we want fellowship with Him, we must allow Him to cleanse us of that sin. You understand that John knew the distinction between positional and practical truth. John believe it or not, had read John 3.16 when he wrote in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, some people would have the belief, and there's a big $10 theological word for this called antinomianism. What it really means is this, that grace makes us gross. That because of grace, I can live any way that I want, and God doesn't have an opinion about that. But that's a biblical perspective. God cares deeply how we live and how we behave. And while it's true that as a believer, having been born again, you never have to come back to the matter of salvation and ask for forgiveness again. You are sealed under the day of redemption. But just because you're saved doesn't mean your life cannot and your fellowship cannot be disrupted through sin in your day-to-day life. You want to come in the house and fellowship? You've got to have that sin dealt with. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. You remember John, he's writing over and over again in 1 John. He uses the term beloved. Beloved, meaning saved folks. He ain't writing to unsaved folks. He's writing to save folks and saying we need to confess our sin to Him and ask Him to cleanse us and forgive us of them. Here Jesus has a deeper meaning to this truth. And in the life of the believer, it has to do with God forgiving of them of their sins on a day-by-day basis that they might maintain fellowship with Him. There was a deeper meaning here. But then notice number two, there is a needful ministry. I've already preached this, so we get to skip ahead a little bit. All right? Hooray. But... There is a needful ministry here. Peter says, great, Lord, sign me up. Wash me head to toe. I mean, give me, just send me through. I mean, even put the bug shield stuff on my windshield. Lord, I'm ready to go. And the Lord says, wait a minute, Peter. I'm not saying you need to be resaved. What I am saying is that you need to be restored to a proper state of fellowship. And that's what he says. Say, Peter saith unto him, thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I wash thee not... Thou hast no part with me. What does it mean to have part with someone? It means to have company with someone. It means to have fellowship with someone. Can I say in your life and in my life, if we want to enjoy, and I even alluded to this this morning, I don't know if it's in Sunday school or in here, uh, sometimes my preaching's a blur, not just to you, but to me. But to the fact that there's a difference between the express or explicit presence of God and the experiential presence of God. God's always with us. You understand that? Hebrews chapter 13, Let your conversation be without covetousness, for as much as it is written, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. You can't get anywhere that you can get away from God. That's what Jonah teaches us in the Old Testament. You can try to run from the presence of the Lord, but God's everywhere, right? He's in all places, His eyes running to and fro throughout the earth. But then there are many times in the Bible that we find that God's presence departs a person. How can we explain those two things? Well, God's presence is always with us, it's true. But that doesn't mean that we are always dwelling in the strength and in the fellowship of His presence. 
I don't just want him to be there. I want to know he's there. And I don't just want him to be there. I want people to know he's there when they see his presence in my life. Peter says, you'll never wash my feet. And the Lord says, if you want fellowship, I will. And I'll tell you, if you want the power and presence of God in your life, you're going to have to address sin in your life. You can't ignore it. You can't disregard it. You can't just say, well, I'll quit now and God will, God will just pretend it never happened. No, if we confess our sins, if we confess our it ain't talking about going to some priest. It ain't talking about going to your preacher. It's talking about going to your advocate. That's what chapter 2 of First John says. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Is that the preacher? Is that the evangelist? Is that the priest? No, that's Jesus Christ the righteous. And He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. You've got to go to the advocate. You've got to go to Jesus Christ. And you don't come to him and say, well, Lord, I need to be saved again because you don't lose your salvation because it wasn't your salvation in the first place. It was him. You're sealed under the day of redemption. But you sure enough are going to have to come to him sometimes and say, Lord, I stepped in a mud hole. <laughs> Lord, I've made a mess of my life. If you want fellowship with him, you're going to have to let him wash your feet. It's needed for fellowship. And then verses 9 through 11 remind us it's needed after salvation. He says in verse 10, he that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet. Hey, praise the Lord. He that is washed needeth not to wash, but to save his feet. Aren't you glad your salvation is not dependent upon you keeping promises to God? Aren't you glad your salvation is not contingent upon you maintaining a a, a status or a, a standard before God? My salvation is not predicated upon me holding in or holding out or standing up or sitting down or hanging in or slinging left or slinging right. My salvation is predicated on the finished work of Christ on Calvary. But that also does not disregard or dismiss the reality that if my walk with God is going to be what it needs to be, I'm going to have to be willing to come to Him when I've sinned and ask His forgiveness. But when I do, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, what He did was a picture. What He did was a priority. But we find out in these next verses that what He did was a pattern. He says this, So after He had washed their feet, verse 12, and taken His garments was set down again. He said unto them, Know you what I have done to you? Uh, They had no answer. They couldn't explain. They knew he had washed feet, but obviously he had done something more. And he says this, Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Is he instituting a new ordinance in the New Testament church? If he is, we don't find it once practiced in the New Testament. We don't find Paul giving instruction regarding it. But I think the greater danger is not that we in a misguided sense wash somebody's feet. I think the greater danger if we misinterpret this passage is that we miss the deeper responsibility that God places on your life and mine. You see, we have a relationship with God. But sometimes we make mistakes and mess up. When we do, <laughs> when we do, fellowship's disrupted. Fellowship can't be restored until that matter's dealt with. So we have to come to the Lord. But thank the Lord that He will always be willing if we'll come to Him and make it right and confess it and forsake it. He is willing to forgive us and to restore that fellowship. Now I wonder how we treat one another. No one will ever need your forgiveness that deserves it. No one will ever need your forgiveness that has never hurt you. 
it will always be people with dirty feet that you'll have to wash. He was teaching his disciples that if they were going to have fellowship with one another, they are going to have to learn about this matter of forgiveness. Notice three truths here. Number one, notice the title he invoked. He said, ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say well, for so I am. Why did he say this? He's getting ready to use this title to give force to the illustration that he's given. But stop and consider why that gives force in the first place. He's the master. He shouldn't have to wash feet. But you see, it's not those that have to wash feet that do wash feet. He's the Lord. He doesn't deserve to wash feet. But you see, it's not those that deserve to wash feet that wash feet. He, of all people, shouldn't have had to do this task. But you know, the funny thing about it, it is almost exclusively those who, of all people, shouldn't have to, that will of necessity have to. It is almost always those that didn't deserve it that are going to have to find the grace to forgive anyway. He's wanting them to understand. They call Him Master and Lord. They put Him on a pedestal. They say he has all authority. So what does he do with the authority he has? (laughs) We often, I don't know, I'm not even sure if anybody else is in the room right now. Me and the Lord are, and I guess I need this because that's fine. But (laughs) I shouldn't have to forgive them. Well, you don't have to. Nobody will make you. Well, they don't deserve my forgiveness. They probably don't. They're going to hurt me again. Very likely. But here's the question. You think you have authority to not forgive. I'm asking you if you have authority enough to forgive. He's master. He's Lord. He is not just master of the disciples. He's master of the universe. He's not just Lord of this little band of followers. He's Lord of all creation. He has the right. He has the authority. He has the ability. And none of that matters. Because none of that is what restores fellowship. Just as he had laid aside his garment, he laid aside his rights and forgave them nonetheless. I see the title he invoked. See the testimony he imparted. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. You never look more like Jesus than when you're forgiving someone that doesn't deserve it. On the cross of Calvary, the Lord looked down at the people holding the hammers and the nails the people casting vile insults into his teeth. He looked down at people that still held clumps of his hair and his beard. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We would say, I won't forgive them. They don't even know what they've done. I won't forgive them. They don't even know what, they don't even know how bad they've hurt me. They don't even know how bad what they've done has been. They don't even know the destruction they've caused. I won't forgive them. He said, I'll forgive them because they don't know. I'll forgive those that don't know. But hey, let me tell you this. We're not of that band. Now, before you get excited, here's what I mean. We're not of the group that doesn't know. 
We're of the group that knows that our sin put Him on that cross. We're of the group that knows that our rebellion nailed Him there. And He forgave us. He didn't just say forgive them for they know not, but He even forgave those that knew. And we never look more like Him than when we're forgiven folks that don't deserve it. We never look more like Him than when we're forgiven people that will hurt us again. We never look more like Him than when we're forgiven people when we don't have to and when it's not our responsibility to. But when we prioritize the restoration of fellowship above all else and say, I want God to get glory out of this situation. I see the title he invoked. I see the testimony that he imparted. But I want you to notice the truth that he impressed. Preacher, I shouldn't have to. I know, that's what your flesh screams out, because that's what my flesh screams out too. I shouldn't have to. Notice what he says. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. Why did he finish out this teaching in this way? Uh, the Lord has a way, how do I say this uh, delicately, of throwing our words back in our face. Uh, he does. We're going to be judged by our words one day. You can imagine as he's sitting there and he's saying, you call me master and Lord and, and well, for so I am. And they're all saying, amen. That's right. Yes, you are. You're the Lord. You're the master. And he says, if I've done this for you, you ought to do it for each other. And them saying, well, now, Lord, I mean, you know, you're the Lord and master and all, but there's no way I could do that. How could they look at him and say, it is beneath me to forgive after he had just forgiven? You see, we all interpret Calvary in the light of God's forgiveness to us. And I understand that. That's, that's the most momentous truth that a human being can ever internalize, is that he died for us. But remember, he also died for them. Who's them, preacher? The people that hurt you. The people that hate you. The people that wounded you and cut you, those people he died for. Well, preacher, of course he would because they did that to me. They didn't do that to, to him. But they did. And they did far worse to him. We all probably have wounds in our life. I do. Uh, they're not as deep as yours, I'm sure. And, you know, I guess we can sit around comparing ourselves amongst each other and become unwise, but... At the end of the day, nobody's ever been hurt like he's been hurt. Nobody's ever been hated like he was hated. Nobody's ever been done like he was done. And yet still he forgave. Well, sure, preacher, lost sinners, they come and, and God's got to. And no, 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 I don't just mean before Calvary. I mean in your life after Calvary. You still hurt him. I still hurt him. He would say about Judas, my own familiar friend hath lifted up his heel against me. Wonder how he feels when his child does it. Wonder how he feels when his, when his servant does it. Wonder how he feels when part of God's family does it. We're all guilty of it, you understand. We're all guilty of it. So here's the simple question that John 13 teaches. If he can forgive, why can't you? And if he can forgive, why can't I? And if he can forgive those that have done him that way, then who could we ever find that we couldn't, by the grace of God, find the ability to forgive in His love and in His mercy?
Let's bow our heads together as a musician plays. I want to give you an opportunity to come and talk to the Lord this morning. I don't know what you may be going through. I don't know what you may have experienced in your life. But I I do know this. I know that nothing is ever done by accident. And I know that God had me and you both here for a reason today. And I wonder just exactly what God has spoken to your heart about. It might be that there's some dirt on your feet in your walk with God. And you thought you could just ignore it and pretend like it wasn't there. But God won't help you be a hypocrite. That sin's going to have to be dealt with. So if you as a saved individual have some matter in your life that you've not dealt with before the Lord, why don't you find a place down here and make today the day that you get that settled. You don't have to wait three weeks. It's not starting a process. You just have to come to Him. He'll take care of the rest. You come to Him and confess it. Ask His forgiveness, forsake it, and He'll take care of it. Or maybe there's some matter in your life between you and another. And you need God's grace and strength to forgive. Why don't you come seek Him for it this morning? Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.